0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life.
1: This is The poll's stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. It looked like it was going to be a really fun day in Jia Jung's first grade classroom. He was six years old at the time.
2: The teacher bought everyone gifts, you know, and stacked them in the corner of the classroom. And how awesome was that, right?
1: Jia grew up in Beijing, and this was part of his school's New Year's celebration. Here's what the teacher had in mind. The kids would take turns saying something nice about one of their classmates.
2: And the person who gets the praise uh, would smile and pick up the gift and sit down. It's a wonderful idea.
1: One by one, Jia's classmates got a nice compliment, and they picked up their gifts.
2: But there were three kids left, and no one was say anything nice about them. Why I remember this so vividly? Because I was one of the three kids. I was just standing there and it wasn't fun anymore.
1: Jaw started to feel bad and confused.
2: I thought I was actually cool, uh, might be a popular person, but then I saw the two kids standing next to me. I knew otherwise because I hated both of them. So, uh, yeah, I was crying.
1: The teacher turned to the class and tried to get somebody, anybody, to compliment Jaw.
2: Man, a- anyone say anything nice? Anyone? all right, why don't you just go grab a gift and sit down? You guys behave better next year so someone will say something nice about you.
1: Jai's in his 40s now, but he has never forgotten that day, the way he felt.
2: It was just fear. And the thing is, what it made me feel is I I never want to be in that situation again. Never. So... I don't want to take any chances. I don't want to get in front of people. I just don't want to get rejected by everyone like that.
1: Rejection, or even the thought of it, can strike a deep fear into your heart and leave a terrible taste in your mouth. In the aftermath, there's often a mix of emotions, sadness, shame, or anger. But it doesn't have to be that way, and there's a lot we can learn from it. On today's episode, understanding rejection and the lessons it can bring. To get started, let's try to figure out why rejection feels so awful and scary. I talked about that with Arash He is a fear and anxiety researcher at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. He told me that this fear is primal and goes back thousands of years when we lived in tribal societies where people really had to stick together to survive. So in those
3: contexts, chances were high that if we were rejected, there would be a fight or there would be an exile. And both of them would have seriously detrimental consequences. So as a result of that, I would have to go to the fight and flight mode to run away or attack. So the fear reaction should be seen in those situations that I'm going to lose serious important resources.
1: We're hardwired to have those reactions, the racing heart, the anxiety, the knot in your stomach, even if modern day situations don't always warrant them. So
3: when we come back to the current environment, the losses may not match the level of fear or anxiety that we feel after rejection. For example, I may have an evaluation meeting with my boss and my heart is pounding. And I'm feeling very nervous because I'm worried that because of Let's say some mismatches in our expectations of what I'm doing, there may be a rejection. But what is the worst outcome of the rejection? They're not going to kill me, but my heart's pounding, preparing me for fight
1: and flight. After a rejection, we tend to have lots of questions. What's wrong with me? Why did this person not like me? Why didn't I win this award? Why didn't I get the job? And there's often a mix of emotions that follows.
3: For example, I might have imagined, okay, now that I'm rejected from this job, I will not be able to pay my bills, I will not be able to support my family, this, that, that, and that makes me scared of those consequences that have not happened yet. Or I may uh, feel that, okay, this person who rejected my dating offer Now I will never find anyone to be with and I want to be alone forever. I will never have kids. All these anxieties people can have, right? Sadness would be more when it has happened. So then it comes to this state of hopelessness and helplessness or basically conceptualizing whether realistically or in fantasies of some loss, that I lost this respect, I lost this award, I lost this opportunity, I lost this income, that loss... Like we grieve for it, right? So we go to the stage of sadness. And of course, anger could also be another outcome that we can talk about. Yeah, when does anger come in? So anger and fear are always like two sides of a coin for me. When I see a person is angry, my first question is, what are they afraid of? Why? Because again, going back to the evolution, anger is a reaction to the danger. So when something is dangerous, we run away from it. Fight or we attack it. Fight. And for fight and attack, anger comes handy and anger is helpful. Rage and anger. So anger is part of the anxiety and fear part. If I am afraid of all these losses, part of my reaction could be anger towards the source of this loss that has occurred to me. But also I could be angry at different things. I could be angry at the party that rejected me or I could be angry at the things that I have perceived as leading to the rejection, let's say, oh, my dad or mom didn't help me enough in my education, and now because of that, I couldn't get this job. Or even anger at ourselves, that I'm angry at me because I might have failed.
1: And is that emotion helpful in overcoming the rejection? I think emotions are signals
3: that tell us something is wrong, right? Right then the signal has to be basically evaluated because signal could be false, signal could be exaggerated, or signal could be underestimating the danger. So signal basically, if I feel afraid, it may tell me there might be a problem here. Then the next stage is to logically look at it and see what could be the risk here. Let's say if, again, in anticipation of an upcoming date, that anxiety may help me Be a little bit more uh, clean and neat and uh, iron my uh, outfit and uh, wear a better uh, outfit and be more alert and be more uh, basically focused on the situation and on on the task I'm having, which is trying to, if I like the other person, convince them uh, them that I'm likable. Or sadness sometimes tells us, okay, slow down. Okay, you've tried everything. It didn't work. Slow down, stop fighting, sit down, recuperate, lick your wounds, and see what you can do. Anger also tells us that, okay, I feel unfairness. We feel injustice. So as long as these emotions are seen as a signal that then we can logically assess the situation, not only that signal helps us direct our focus, but also they create some energy that can be channeled into function. So again, depends on what we do with it. It's an energy. This energy could be used, could be abused, or can use us.
1: Does it help to get an explanation when we are being rejected? Does it help when there is a reason or when the reason is being explained in some way?
3: Ambiguity is, uh, is dangerous, mm-hmm. and it's scary and it's frustrating when you don't know why things are happening. Let's say I, my friend at the office, may I come today and I say hi. They don't even say hi to me. I may have a ton of different interpretations about what's happening. I may feel, oh, they hate me, they don't like me because of uh, the email I sent that the day. They're having this reaction because they don't. Uh, d- 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 all these different things about what I might have done or what they might be doing to me. But if I know the story, I'm, I, the story might be they didn't. Uh, they just got a new puppy or they have a new baby and they couldn't <laughs> sleep last night. Yes, <laughs> and they didn't even notice me or they had a. Uh, disagreement with their partner this morning, and they are not in a good mood. So, But of course, not always we can know the reason, but when the reason, especially in important situations, if the reason is explained, that can help at least handle these emotions or dampen them or redirect them.
1: I'm thinking, though, in, in today's world, people get rejected all the time without an explanation. A lot of jobs where people apply, they never hear back. When people are dating online, they get ghosted, you know. So there is this constant stream of rejection where you have absolutely no answer whatsoever.
3: That's true, especially with the environment getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Meaning that so there was a time that one could apply to three or four jobs in the neighborhood or in their small area. Or they would have, I don't know, five dating opportunities a year. But now with these apps, in 10 minutes, they can go through, I don't know, 100, to 200 profiles of dating. Or apply online to 300 jobs. So the number of rejections can become more and the things, situations be more complicated and things be actually, as you mentioned, less clear. Because it's one thing to go have a job interview in person and then say, okay, we don't want this, and there's another thing to apply to so many places and then just get the rejection letter or never get an answer. But I think what might make it easy is two things. Number one, repetition. The first time I had the research paper rejected by a journal after we did a couple of rounds of revisions of the paper, I was a resident. And I remember exactly where I was sitting and I saw this email and my reaction was like, okay, I cannot be a good scientist. Maybe I should stop doing research now when we get rejected after having published more than 100 papers when we get rejected the immediate reaction is okay what are the changes we should make and where are we submitting next so basically this we we get desensitized to it right the first time we had a heartbreak probably was harder than heartbreak number five
1: Also, keep in mind that the odds of being chosen and avoiding rejection are not in your favor, whether you're applying for a job or dating.
3: There are a lot of mean people out there. There are a lot of people who are unfriendly. There are a lot of people who don't care. There are a lot of people who will not like you. Actually, uh, I remember a mentor a long time ago told me that in the dating business, there are a lot of women out there who could be a good match for you. There are lots more who would not be a good match for you. This is logical. So anytime you go on a date, chances of failure are much higher than chances of success. So when you go, you should be in a mindset that if it doesn't fail, it's the exception. So then you will feel less, less aching, less hurt.
1: Arash says if we pay closer attention to our emotions, the process of rejection can teach us a lot about ourselves, like in relationships.
3: We have all these fantasies about what we want. Obviously, there's a difference between what I want, what I need, and what is available. We need to find the overlap between the three. What I want may be even actually a lot of times very different than what I really need. So being able to find what I need, so that helps us. And also the reactions that come out of me helps me learn. There are certain situations that bother me a lot. Certain type of behavior in others bother me a lot. Well, it's an easy reaction is to say, oh, these kind of people make me very angry and I hate these kind of people. Or I may think, why? What is in me that is a hook for that? What is the connection that I make with these certain types of rejection or reactions from the environment that make me less comfortable or make it more painful for me? Then I can learn about myself. And when I learn about myself, I can change my vulnerabilities.
1: Arash Javanbach studies fear and anxiety at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. We're talking about rejection. We asked our intern, Alan Hinage to go out and try to talk to some people about their memories of being rejected and bouncing back.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: But it ended up being I'm its own lesson up. in rejection.
2: Are you okay? All right. Have a good one. Hi. Right. How's it going? I'm working for the radio station.
4: No, nope. All
2: right. Didn't even stop to acknowledge me. Anyway, onwards. Onwards, Alan. Eventually,
1: a couple of people did talk to Alan, like Steve, who recalled getting fired from his first job.
4: So I think I was just way in, in over my head, and uh, I didn't make it. Not Knowing that I was going to be terminated from that job, it just... Uh, it didn't make sense at the time for me, but now that I'm older, I see that you know I need to go through that rejection to become a better person, and so I uh, started doing uh, operations for financial firms. Wow. Yep. <laughs> I wouldn't have had. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have had my kids.
1: Wow. I would that's have amazing. had a completely
4: different uh, trajectory in life. So
1: this is a Alan also met Sahir, who is in middle school and recently didn't get picked for a sports team he tried out for.
0: They didn't let me into a, a baseball team. I was just like, I went home, I was kind of sad because like, honestly, wasn't that nice, but hey, like, it, there was always next time.
1: And here's David, a saxophone player and Philadelphia street performer.
2: I remember looking at it the first time, you know how you're in high school and you going into the dance and usually the dance was held in the gym and you go over there and you ask and you got a bunch of girls over there and you say, hey, can I have this dance? And she says, no. And you have to deal with that rejection at 16 and 17. You got to learn to deal with, you know, persevere. We deal with pain. We don't like pain, but pain is good because if we don't feel the pain, then we don't know nothing is wrong with us. So rejection is good.
1: Coming up, people's reactions to rejection can vary. And for some, it's a lot harder to deal with. So it starts out as one thing. And then my brain
0: kind of rapid cycles through all of the things about myself that I don't like. All of the ways that I feel like I'm not where I should be in life.
1: That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're hardwired to fear rejection. It can make us feel anxious and scared, but how much it upsets us varies a lot from person to person. It depends on how somebody's brain works and their experiences in life. And for some, rejection can be completely crushing, even in situations where seemingly very little is at stake. Nicole Curry has this story about people who experience rejection very intensely.
5: Nikki Scott was standing in her kitchen one evening. She was preparing a side dish for dinner.
1: And I had this bowl of
5: cheesy broccoli. At the time, Nikki and her partner were really struggling financially. So she was looking forward to this home cooked meal. It was one of her favorites.
0: We were pinching
5: pennies, and
0: I was just really excited about that broccoli. And then? I dropped the bowl and it shattered. And glass went everywhere, broccoli went everywhere, and I was absolutely hysterical. I had to go sit in the closet and hyperventilate and just sob uncontrollably. Nikki couldn't stop crying, and her head was spinning. I just remember sitting there in the dark, bawling my eyes out over this broccoli and thinking, what is wrong with me? Like, it's just broccoli. Why am I so upset? It was that That trigger that made me think, like, I am such a loser. Like, I've just cost us money. You know, we don't have money.
5: After about an hour, Nikki wiped her tears, left the closet, and began to clean up her mess. Her partner came home and didn't think this was such a big deal. But Nikki couldn't let it go. So it starts out as one thing.
0: And then my brain kind of rapid cycles through all of the things about myself that I don't like. All of the ways that I feel like I'm not where I should be in life, or I'm not the partner I should be, or I'm not the mother I should be.
5: The way Nikki felt, this rapid and crushing reaction to a small mishap, was a feeling she was familiar with. It even has a name rejection-sensitive dysphoria. It's a condition that is believed to be common in adults who have ADHD, like Nikki. Rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD for short, is a severe and irrational response people have anytime they feel like they've failed or when they perceive they've been rejected. If my partner
0: is upset with me, in my brain, the RSD goes, well, this is the beginning of the end. This is this is the final straw. You know, he loves you, but you've just been annoying one too many times. Or, you know, I mess something up at work and they have to talk to me about it. And my RSD goes, you're going to get fired and you're going to lose your livelihood and you're going to lose your apartment.
5: RSD is an instant shift in mood often accompanied by a constant flow of tears and sometimes rage and thoughts of suicide. Some people even experience physical pain as if they've been kicked in the gut. This extreme reaction can go on for hours. Spiraling thoughts can last for days and eventually the feeling disappears as quickly as it arrived. Among people who have ADHD, this condition gets talked about a lot. You can read about it on Twitter, Reddit, and find it in a simple Google search. But it's not an official diagnosis, nor has it been studied. Researchers have noted that people with ADHD are sensitive to rejection, but there is no clinical research on this self-reported extreme form that comes with physical pain.
6: There's always somebody who says, well, I searched the literature and there's nothing there. Well, it's, it's
5: not for lack of trying. That's psychiatrist William Dotson. He's the guy who named RSD. It was after he had dug through some research from one of the pioneers in the ADHD field, Paul Winder.
6: And he was writing about how extremely sensitive people with ADHD were to um, rejection, teasing, criticism, the perception that they'd lost someone's respect or that they'd done it to themselves because they didn't meet their own standards.
5: William has seen adults with ADHD for more than 25 years, and he began asking his patients about this feeling.
6: And I was just astounded that virtually all of them said that it was a very big deal, but they told no one about it. It was their deepest, darkest secret. I mean, at least half of people Half of my patients would burst into tears. People talk about being punched in the chest, or it's like being stabbed in the chest.
5: They said the worst part was that it was almost impossible to control.
6: As one of my patients said, that from the time they are aware that an episode of RSD has been triggered to its full force, he says it's just enough time to say, oh,
5: William looked at the research on similar outbursts, like the manic phase of bipolar disorder, but he realized this was different.
6: The onset of a mood disorder is gradual, days to weeks. By definition, it's untriggered, whereas somebody with rejection sensitivity is very clear that they can see a trigger and that the mood shift is instantaneous.
5: So William thought it was worth researching. He wondered if this emotional reaction could tell us more about the elements of ADHD, or since ADHD impacts brain function, that maybe these explosive episodes could be treated with medicine. He wrote a paper on RSD that stuck to the basics. It defined the condition and outlined 12 core features based on interviews with his patients. He described that the outbursts occur only after feeling rejected, the mood shift is instant, the episode cannot be stopped once it starts, and that the person feels ashamed after the episode.
6: So we submitted it, and when we checked back, Two hours later, it had already been rejected.
5: With no feedback, William tried again and again for 10 years to get the paper published, to get more people to pay attention to RSD and do further research on it. But it didn't go anywhere and eventually he gave up. But William had given something a name that so many people with ADHD say they experience And it sparked a grassroots effort to learn more. Jillian Enright has been trying to understand RSD since she saw it on social media two years ago.
7: My first reaction was like, wow, this explains a lot, this describes a lot of people's real lived experiences.
5: Jillian is an autism and ADHD coach at Neurodiversity Manitoba in Canada. She lives with both conditions and wanted to write an article about RSD to help people understand it.
7: I'm a nerd first and foremost, and I so when I write any of my articles, I try and do a lot of evidence-based, peer-reviewed research and try and weave that into in more
5: accessible writing. But of course, she couldn't find any official research. So first, Jillian decided to look inward at her own experiences. Maybe pages from her past could make sense of all of this.
7: Well, people with ADHD and people who are different in any way receive more corrections and criticism than other people who fall within the, the average or the norm. And so it kind of stands to reason that we would become more sensitive to rejection or criticism because we experience greater amounts of it.
5: Jillian could find research to support this. Classroom studies estimate that by age 12, children with ADHD are more likely to hear 20,000 additional negative comments than their counterparts. And then she found something that could further explain RSD. Researchers are learning that people with ADHD generally have challenges processing their emotions due to their brain makeup. Emotions like happiness, sadness, fear, and anger. So much so that researchers are working to get this difficulty included as a core element of the disorder, along with inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. And so
7: we may experience our emotions a lot more intensely than you know, other people do. And those things combined, working together, the increased incidence of actual rejection and criticism, plus the increased intensity of emotions and more difficult regulating them can all work together.
5: Work together to lead to RSD. This is how Jillian has made sense of it. But again, this is just a theory. We won't really know until it's studied in a clinical setting, until there is more research on the connection between emotions and ADHD. In the meantime, people like Nikki Scott are doing what they can to get by. Knowing what it is
0: has helped manage it a little bit. But in the moment, it's very hard to convince yourself that things are actually not that bad.
5: It's a lot of internal work. Nikki can sometimes manage the reaction, or at least the reaction she presents to the world, but the actual emotional and physical feeling is almost impossible to get rid of. It's just something she has to live with. Because you're trained that that's supposed to be a child thing that you outgrow.
0: I don't know if maybe it was just part of my, my parents' generation or not, but showing extreme emotion like that was really labeled as an immaturity thing that once you got older you knew how to control yourself you knew how to not take everything so personally you developed a thicker skin and so not not having developed a thicker skin still being an easy crier still having my feelings hurt easily it feeds into that feeling of there's something wrong with me and i am not who i'm supposed to be and it's it's awkward to have to admit that sometimes.
1: For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. Coming up, you didn't get the job, you weren't picked for the team, or your crush never called you again. What now? We'll take a closer look at dealing with rejection.
8: It is possible to have these failures and these struggles and still come out on top. There is always hope. There is always a light on the other side.
1: That's next on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about rejection. What if you set your mind, your heart, and your bank account, your entire future, really, on one single goal, and then you're rejected at a moment when it really matters? What do you do? That's the scary possibility graduating medical students face every year when they apply for residencies, the clinical training programs they need to complete to become licensed physicians. Reporter Liz Tang has this story of a woman who recently experienced every med student's worst nightmare.
4: It was the morning of Monday, March fourteenth, 2022, and Katie Bellis was waiting for an
8: email that would change her life. He hoped for the better. I just remember pacing back and forth. It's so anxiety inducing to realize that the fate of the next three to six years of your future is in one single email, either saying yes or no. Katie was a fourth-year med student, and the email she was waiting for
4: was to find out whether or not she'd been accepted to a residency, the final step in a grueling journey called the National Resident Matching Program, better known as The Match. The Match is kind of like the college application process on steroids. For one thing, it's incredibly competitive. Med students, depending on their specialty, will typically apply to dozens, sometimes more than a hundred programs in order to boost their odds. Because there's a lot at stake. Residency is the first and one of the most important jobs a doctor will ever have. It not only determines what their specialty is, but where they'll live for the next three to seven years, what kind of experience they'll get, and what kinds of jobs are open to them after they graduate. D-Day comes on the Monday morning of Match Week, which is when every one of those students finds out whether or not they've matched, though they won't find out till that Friday where they've matched. That Monday morning, Katie was basically optimistic, even though her stats weren't the best. She'd applied to a few dozen programs, but only interviewed
8: with two. I was quite nervous, but I felt like I had a pretty decent relationship with those two programs coming in. So I felt, Pretty confident actually that I was going to match at those two programs.
4: Finally, at 9 a.m., the email appeared in her inbox. The subject 2022 Maine residency match results. Katie took a deep breath and opened it. She willed it to say the words she wanted to see Congratulations, you have matched. But instead, it said something else. We're sorry that you have not matched. <laughs> Katie felt like she'd gotten the wind knocked out of her. It was hard to breathe. The future she'd seen laid out so
8: clearly before her darkened into a tunnel. It was just absolutely soul-shattering. It's probably the biggest disappointment that you could ever have as a medical student, just knowing that you've spent the last 48 years struggling through all of this material, through all of this mental, emotional, physical anguish, Just to get a no. No, you're not good enough. And it just makes you feel worthless.
4: This is an experience that thousands of medical students have every year. And yet, Katie says, it's rarely talked about openly. Instead, rejected applicants gather online to lick their wounds and commiserate. Some ask for advice. Others feel like their lives are over. That might seem dramatic, but to understand why they feel this way, you have to understand the long journey to becoming a doctor, along with the very intense nature of the match.
8: For Katie, it all started when she was just 16 years old, with, of all things, a dead cat. In high school, I had my first anatomy class, and we were dissecting uh, cats, which I know is a little morbid, but uh, (laughs) I found myself just immediately wanting to get in there. And everyone else was just disgusted. And I was like, why? Why are you disgusted? This is so cool. (laughs) This is amazing.
4: From then on, everything in Katie's life was directed towards becoming a doctor. She picked her college based on their pre-med program and spent the next four years slogging her way through all the prereqs. She did the networking, studied her butt off for the MCATs, and eventually she was accepted to med school. At that moment, Katie felt like she'd arrived. What she didn't yet fully understand was how insanely
8: hard and stressful the next few years of her life would be. It's exhausting because you're constantly worrying that you're going to forget something, that you are going to fail. Even if you miss one minor question, you obsess over it because you're thinking, "Okay, my classmate over there, they know those details, but I don't. So I feel like a failure. Katie struggled. She thought about dropping out. But over the months, she slowly
4: figured out how to cope. She leaned on her classmates and made time for self-care. She tried to let go of the idea that she needed to be perfect. And when it came time to decide what specialty she wanted to pursue, she returned to what drew her to medicine in the first place. The anatomy
8: lab, because I loved doing dissections.
4: After talking with a couple of professors, Katie discovered there was a specialty perfectly matched to her interests, pathology. Pathologists are known as the doctor's doctor because their main job is helping other physicians make diagnoses. Figuring out what kind of doctor Katie wanted to be was big. For the next three years, it gave her something to work towards, a push to keep going whenever she was exhausted and frustrated and felt like giving up. It all culminated in the summer before her fourth year with the start of the match. Katie applied to 32 programs.
8: I probably should have applied to more, but at the time I thought
4: I was safe. Katie thought she had a solid application. There was just one thing missing.
8: The score for a required exam that she had yet to receive. So I sent in all my applications and I was waiting for my score to come back. Unfortunately, I did not pass my level two exam. That got me all flustered. She took it again that October, well into application season. And because I was all flustered,
4: I didn't pass again. Katie finally passed on her third try that January. But it was already past the time that most programs decide who they're going to interview. As it turned out, the two interviews Katie snagged weren't quite enough. Which brings us back to the Monday morning of Match Week 2022. Katie had just gotten the news and she was spinning. Her whole future had just fallen to pieces,
8: but she didn't have time to wallow. So you immediately, right after you find out you don't match on Monday morning, you have to jump into what is called the SOAP process.
4: SOAP stands for the Supplemental Offer and Acceptance Program, which is basically the final Hail Mary option for med students who didn't manage to snag a residency spot. It's frankly an insane process. Pretty much as soon as med students find out they didn't match, they have to start a whole new application process that's crammed into three days. It begins that very afternoon with choosing a whole new set of programs to apply to. That year, there were only 10
8: pathology spots left. Katie applied to all of them. And then you sit around twiddling your thumbs for each program to start contacting you.
4: Thursday is the day that unmatched med students find out if they've soaped into a program. Katie waited all day, checking the online portal again and
8: again. But her inbox stayed empty. It was over. At the end of Thursday, I was completely dejected. I felt like such a failure.
4: She told all her family and friends she was applying through soap, and they were all expecting
8: it would work. But now it turned out that last vestige of hope was gone. Not only do you feel like a failure because you didn't match initially, but even after you've scrambled and really tried your best, you've been denied that you're not you're not worth it to the programs. You just you don't feel good enough.
4: What made it even harder was that all around her, Katie's friends and classmates were celebrating. Most schools hold a big match day bash on the Friday of that week which is the day that students find out which exact program they've
8: matched to and where they're headed for the next three to seven
4: years of their lives.
8: Knowing that I was unmatched and knowing that my peers were on the other side of the city celebrating, you know, their futures, that was just gut-wrenching. She was happy for them, but she felt completely alienated. It was like a wall had grown up between her and them. I felt like... If I explained what I was feeling to them in that moment that I was going to, I don't know, curse them with my own <laughs> my own depression, I guess. Yeah, I just wanted them to be happy. And I didn't exactly know how to relate this new struggle to them.
4: She didn't even really know how to relate this struggle to herself. Katie had never not succeeded with any big goal she'd
8: set for herself. Sure, there were the exams she'd failed, but exams you can retake. But with matching, that was it. You were going to have to wait another year. And then with each year that goes by, you know that you become less and less competitive to the programs that you apply to. So just knowing that that I may not ever become a full physician was just Terrifying.
4: Katie spent a week or two wallowing, but she knew she didn't have long. She needed to figure out a plan. What was next? She ended up finding a research lab tech position at a local pathology department. It wasn't paid all that well, especially considering that she had just spent $150,000 on med school, but it was in the field she wanted to pursue, so Katie applied and she got the job.
8: At first, I was definitely depressed and I was embarrassed to be in a job that was kind of beneath my uh, degree that didn't really pay well. I really had to humble myself to get into that position. But
4: as time went on, Katie started coming to terms with her new situation. Instead of ruminating on all the ways she'd failed, Katie started focusing on the positives of the past few years her loving and supportive family, her recent wedding, the fact that she'd actually graduated from med school. And over time, her perspective started to shift. She started reclaiming some of her confidence and gathering hope for her next round of applications. It also turned out that this job that felt like such an embarrassment was incredibly helpful. She got to know the residents and attending physicians, sat in on their morning lectures and conferences. She even ended up getting two new letters of recommendation out of it. So by the time application season rolled around again, Katie was feeling prepared. This time, she applied to double the number of programs, between 65 and 70. She included her new, better letters of rec, and she rewrote her personal statement focusing on how this unexpected gap year had turned out to be a good thing for her. And then Katie sent off her applications and she waited. Finally, the Monday of match week rolled around again.
8: I had taken the day off of work because I was so nervous and I knew that if I didn't match, I'd have to scramble again. I'd have to start the soap process again. So I ended up not going into work. My husband ended up staying home as well to support me. And, um... We were sitting at my computer, I heard my email come in, and (laughs) I was just thinking the entire time, I can't look, I can't look, (laughs) please, you have to read it to me. And so my husband (laughs) ended up reading it, this email to me, and he looked at it for a moment, and he just goes, hmm, okay, would you like the good news or the bad news? And I'm thinking, oh God, why, why am I going through this again? Okay, just give me the bad news first. And he goes, "Well, you're not qualified for the soap process because you matched." And I just started screaming. It was, it was an amazing feeling. It just, I, yeah, it it was incredible to finally get that relief of, oh, thank God, I did it. I talked to Katie just
4: a week after she got the good news, and she told me she was still in shock, but also super
8: excited. And I mean, I've already started talking to my fellow classmates, and we're already starting to become friends, so I, I think it's going to be a good fit. It's just going to be a whole new adventure, you know? One of the questions I had about this whole thing
4: was whether it had any point. Like, now that Katie was on the other side of this horrible experience, how did she think about it? the rejection, the disappointment, the embarrassment. Does it feel like meaningless suffering that she should do her best to forget? Or did she get something out of it? Maybe even something valuable?
8: I think this entire year was a positive experience, honestly. I'm glad to have gotten a break, a bit of a breather from the medical realm.
4: She got the chance for the first time in years to decompress to focus on her physical and mental well-being, to spend time with her husband and family and friends.
8: But at the same time, this year off has made me realize that, no, I I really do want to be in medicine. I I really do want to be a pathologist. It also
4: humbled Katie and gave her more empathy, both in general and especially for other people on the same journey as her. In fact, she says she's been making an effort to reach out on social media to med students who didn't match this year and are feeling the way she felt last year, humiliated, alone, devastated, and
5: scared.
8: For anyone who's going through a similar situation, it is possible to have these failures and these struggles and still come out on top. There is always hope. There is always a light on the other side.
1: That story was reported by Liz Tang. Earlier on, we talked to Jia Jung, who experienced a crushing rejection as a first grader. He was one of three kids who didn't get a single compliment from his classmates during what was supposed to be a fun game. The shame he felt afterwards stuck with him. He never wanted to feel this way again, and it influenced the choices he made in life. He
2: didn't like taking risks. That moment, consciously or unconsciously, flashes back and make me think, you know what, don't do it. Just sit there. If you don't risk it, you're not going to be in that situation again.
1: But by the time he was in his 30s, Ja thought this fear was holding him back. He wanted a change. He wanted to learn how to face rejection and deal with it. He found a game online called Rejection Therapy. It's a challenge of sorts. Kind of works like exposure therapy. You find a way to get rejected intentionally every day for thirty days. Ja thought thirty days wasn't enough, so he went for a hundred days of rejection. His first mission, ask a stranger for a hundred dollars,
2: and it was so scary. And I felt I was going to die. Like I, I, just, I just felt that. You know, my heart was racing and I was sweating. The hair at the back of my neck stood up. Everything seemed like, you know, I was in immense danger.
1: Of course, the stranger said no and Ja ran away. But he had recorded the interaction. And when he watched it, he saw that the stranger really wasn't that scary.
2: I'm like, wow, this guy wasn't... Really treating me bad. He wasn't like yelling at me. He wasn't cussing me out. Ja
1: realized that if he didn't run away and instead faced the rejection, he would maybe get a different outcome. So the next day, he asked for a burger refill, you know, instead of a soda refill at a fast food restaurant. The answer was, again, a no.
2: But this time I didn't run. I, I stayed engaged and just chat with him and trying to negotiate. And lo and behold, I felt much better because I learned that if I don't run after rejection, I don't have to feel too bad. It's running that really destroys me, but not rejection itself.
1: He started to have fun with
2: this. I once go into a TV station, uh, try to see if I can do their weather. Uh, So I got rejected with that. One day I went to a PetSmart and asked them to see if I can get my haircut there. I got rejected there.
1: And sometimes people said yes, even in really surprising situations. One time, a professor allowed him to be a guest lecturer at the university. And Ja learned that rejections can become opportunities to negotiate.
2: So one day I went to a hotel and asked the front desk lady, uh, I said, could I have a free night here? And, uh, and she was like, no, uh, sorry, we, we can't do that now. You know, at the back of my mind, I was like, when do you do it? You know, that sounds like an awesome promotion. But I didn't say it. I was like, oh, that's okay. If I can have a free night, can I take a nap in one of your rooms? I want to try out your mattress. And she said, sure. So she sent a bellman with me to one of their rooms. And so I took a nap in one of the rooms. And then I came down. It was very comfortable. And the thing is, had I just come in straight and asked for taking a nap, she might thought I was crazy. You know, she might still thought I was crazy. But I was able to get a yes because I asked for something big and got rejected and then settled for something else. So when you get rejected, right, you can use that as an opportunity to ask for something else. When people are saying no to you, they're not feeling awesome either. It's not like, okay, I'm going to get up today and my goal is to say three no's to other people. No one does that. People want to say yes to you. So sometimes they can't say no. And that's why if you actually negotiate a little bit and ask for a lesser request, a lot of times people would say yes to you.
1: Jaw says rejection still hurts, but he's learned a lot of things along the way.
2: The world is much kinder than you think. We assess the world a lot of times through media, uh, through our maybe bad experiences. So we make a lot of assumptions. And those assumptions are often the most extreme, either the best case scenario or worst case scenario. But the world actually lives in the middle and it's actually much kinder than you think. So that's number one takeaway. Number two is don't reject yourself. Don't reject yourself. And we're our worst rejecter. Because of the worst case scenario we have, because of the mental scars we have, more ideas, more possible outcomes are killed in our mind than anywhere else. So don't reject yourself. If anyone, let the world reject you.
1: Jia Jung is an entrepreneur and the author of Rejection Proof, How I Beat Fear and Became Invincible Through 100 Days of Rejection. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tong, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding? of why the world is the way it is, listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary
5: series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.